Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 16th, 2015, and this is episode 1558 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a good one for you today. I've got uh, Lucas Branham hanging on. Who's Lucas? Lucas is... Uh, Regular guy just like you, been listening to the show forever, it seems, according to him, and uh, decided a few years ago he wanted to develop an entrepreneurial component in the agricultural world, started out doing some broiler chickens, and he's now uh, stepped into cattle ranching. Uh, started out with a small herd and has now grown up to about 30 head of cattle uh, using leased land, and he's done all of this on a shoestring budget of both time and money. He's going to be on in just a minute to tell you about uh, how you can do the same thing if you'd like to. Before we do that, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle, you can find it at sawtac.com. Nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, that's why they call it Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and all of the tactical stuff you could ever want, you'll find it at sawtac.com. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need, Ready-Made, ready-to-go, point-click and buy at ReadyMadeResources.com from the practice. Tactical to the tactical, guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at ReadyMadeResources.com. Remember, support our sponsors because they support you. Both ReadyMade and SawTac do discounts for members of the support brigade. Most of our other sponsors do as well. Additionally, about 30 other companies will give you discounts if you're members of that support brigade. Just go to the SurvivalPodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. If you use the discounts that are available for stuff that you're buying anyway, your membership will pay for itself. Even if you don't, you're talking 18.3 cents an episode. So if you feel the show's worth two dimes an episode, consider joining. If you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or first responder like EMT, paramedics, and firefighters, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line, and tell me one or two sentences about your service, and I'll get that discount code back to you. Do that before, not after you join the Member Support Brigade. Uh, with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year being 1558. I have the Virgin Queen takes the reins of England. We have Livonian War and Ivan the Terrible, and the University of Jena is established. I'm going to read the Virgin Queen takes the reins of England for you. You can read the other two at tspwiki.com for the year 1558. The Elizabethan era begins as Queen Bloody Mary of England drops dead during an influenza epidemic at the age of 42. Her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth I, takes the throne at age 25. Mary's husband, Philip II, King of Spain, will attempt to marry Elizabeth, but she will rebuff him. Her reign will last 45 years, long enough for Philip to send the entire Spanish Amada after her. But that's in the future. For now, she will use her marriageable status as a political tool, which is how it's meant to be used at this time. Though she is crowned by a Catholic bishop, one of her first acts as queen will be to firmly establish the Protestant Church in England, which will eventually be called the Church of England. However, it's going to take a long time for England, as we imagine it today, to firm up. My tape by, take by Alex Shrugged. Marriage for love was considered foolish at every level in that society, from the average tailor to the Queen of England. The exception was in 1361, when Edward the Black Prince married Countess Joan. This was obviously love, since she did nothing for him politically. From the historian's perspective, the Elizabethan era was the beginning of real stability in England, a golden age. King Edward VI was not that stability, and certainly Queen Mary I was not. I imagine it took some time before Queen Elizabeth was called Good Queen Bess, but it did happen. Here's my take on this. I bet you the Elizabethan era in England still had plenty of ways you could lose your head. I bet it still had plenty of ways that people who were doing things that we would look at today and find to be perfectly acceptable could still end up in the stockade or the stocks or in a dungeon. I bet there was still an incredible oppression of liberty going on uh, in England during the reign of Good Queen Bess. However, 
Uh, it is often the case that the people that have been governed by a tyrant will see a lesser tyrant as good. And it is an easy way to fool people into believing that they're free, simply saying, hey, it could be worse, and having people realize it could be worse. It makes me think of back when I worked for Fluke Network selling their test equipment, and uh, we had certain quality issues that we would bring to the attention of management, and they would say, well, you know, Agilent's quality issues are worse. And our response was, we want to sell what's great. We don't want to sell we suck less. One of the many reasons I'm happy I don't work for that company anymore. But that is exactly how you govern a people in the modern age is you make them realize that there could be worse and therefore what they have they should be grateful for. Rather than actually have them question, are we really free? Do we truly have liberty? Just because it might be worse in, a, in another country or definitely is worse in another country, like let's say Saudi Arabia or Iran, just because it's worse there, does that mean it's good enough here? If we're supposed to be the land of the free and the home of brave and the, the bastion of liberty and all of that jazz, then are we? Well, if you start asking that question, you start looking at all the shit you can't do, if you start realizing that the average American at this point is probably committing at least one federal felony a day because there's so many laws there's no way to know when you're breaking them, you realize the answer is hell no. But we can't have the sheep looking up for the pasture. Keep them over top of the good green clover and they'll keep munching on it while you shear their wool. Move them out into the other pasture and they'll morph into cattle where you can milk and bleed them until they can't really produce anymore. Then let's put them out to die. We call that social security now. And the hell with them. As long as the peasants do as they're told, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That's the society I feel that we live in today. I really do. I feel just because it has been worse and it could be worse and in some places it is worse doesn't mean that I'm ready to stop demanding more freedom and liberty for myself and for others. If I could put one spirit into the American people once again, that's what it would be. But I don't think most of them are interested in it. They're more interested in things like the temperature in their pool. With that, let's get into a better subject today before I start having a meltdown and get too pissed off at how apathetic this country is in the wrong damn way. And let's talk about what we can actually do with what we do have to further ourselves economically and self-sufficient-wise. Sometimes people say, you're going to just call this the duck podcast or the permaculture podcast or whatever. That really kind of ticks me off because here's what I'm trying to do, folks. I'm trying to give you guys as many ways as possible to develop self-sufficiency in your own life so you don't have to cower to people that think you should shut up or leave because it could be worse. And one of the ways we can do that is by developing income streams for ourselves, developing the ability for us to acquire and own property, developing our own retirement accounts that are not subject to the bullshit that the ones that you have you know, in your 401k are, where they're looking to try to figure out how to get what they consider their money back, even though it's your money you worked for. We can do that in a lot of ways, and one of the best ways is through entrepreneurship, And one of, the, one of the biggest opportunities in entrepreneurship today, where, by the way, we can use their own system against them, is in agricultural pursuits. And that's why I'm excited to have our special guest, Lucas, on today to talk to us about going through it a little bit with chickens, getting his feet wet, deciding the chickens were kind of too much work for what he was doing in life, moving on to something a little more substantial in the world of cattle, and how he's gotten that up and running and how he's planning his future with cows in it, and how you can too. With that, I want to say, hey, Lucas, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I'm very excited to, to be talking to you. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to be with me today. I know you're a busy guy. you, you got a job. you got a uh, entrepreneurial thing you're starting up, and we're here to talk about more of the entrepreneurial thing than anything else. But uh, could you start out with kind of, you know, who, who who's Lucas? How old are you? Where do you live? What have you done for a living up till now? And and how did you get yourself wrapped up into the crazy world of jacking around with chickens and cows? Sure, sure. Um, I'm 33 years old. Um, I've been married for about about eight years. Um, got two children, a three-year-old, a five-year-old, two little boys. Um, up until about 
two years ago. Um, I was very heavily involved in um, in cars, automotive stuff, um, more on the the off road aspect of that, um, and that's kind of what I've done, uh, you know, for a living um, as an occupation until well, I still do it now, but I'm kind of moving in a different direction. But um, I work a job at a at a you know a large uh, parcel parcel moving company that I've been with for about 15 years, um, and then I also work at a, uh, a local off-road shop here in Louisville, Kentucky, where we work on Jeeps and trucks and um, do, you know, service and repair and customization and um, everything that goes along with that. I've been doing that for about 11 to 12 years. Um, but, uh, you know, now I'm kind of, a couple of years ago, I, I may I, it was really kind of after the, the Sandy Hook school shooting thing Okay. Um, that I kind of, Got got moving in this direction. <laughs> I think we all have different seminal moments, and it's not just about preparedness, but it's about like like a life evaluation that you kind of have. Like you you see something like that happen to somebody else, and you kind of sit back and go, "Wow, what what am I doing with what I have?" Right? Exactly. Yes, sir. Yeah. It was uh you know that was a, a crazy crazy situation, and that you know got me. Um, you know, really thinking about where I was going and, um, you know, anything meaningful I was doing, um, you know, and also it, it kind of led me into, you know, looking into the, the prepping lifestyle and, um, you know, growing food and, and all that. And that led me, you know, I found your podcast, I found a couple of others, um, you know, and started listening to to different podcasts and, and different things on, um, you know, on video um, you know, while driving back and forth to work, I travel, you know, about an hour, an hour and a half a day, um, commuting to work back and forth. And, um, that's kind of what led me to, to what I'm doing now. Well, you, we're going to talk a lot today about cattle and, and kind of how to get into that business on, on a shoestring budget. And I think with your case, a shoestring budget and money, and then maybe a two shoestring budget and time, which you think is an interesting conundrum to be in to try to make that transition, but you didn't just decide one day I'm going to have cows and go get a bunch of cows. You kind of have transitioned and built to to, to the level of, of running a small herd of cattle and, and looking to expand it. And you kind of started out with a CSA and, and broiler chicken. So can you kind of talk about how you got into that, how that worked, and and, and how that led you forward a little bit? Sure, sure. That was in um, late summer and fall of uh, 2013. Um, my wife had a good friend who had ran a small CSA um, in the summer, spring and summer of 2013 and the year before that. Um, and unfortunately they had a, a family catastrophe and they weren't going to be doing that anymore. And we had kind of grown interested in that over the time that they had been doing it. Um, and, you know, we're in a different area, you know, probably an hour, an hour and a half away from where they were. So it wasn't anything directly related, but it, it just sounded like something that was really fun and they were growing a little community around their little farm and uh, and we decided we wanted to try to do something with that in 2014. Um, so, you know, I, I started researching um, ways to actually make it work because I hadn't ever really done anything more than just a small, you know, very small garden before. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I started researching uh, the whole chicken thing I had had been led into the the the, the broiler uh, meat raising chickens um, from you know maybe from your podcast some and then um, maybe from a couple others I can't recall but I found Joe Salatin <clears throat> found um, you know Greg Judy which is a cattle guy but uh, was getting very interested in in all of the uh, the agricultural. Uh, so I researched that, built a couple chicken tractors to raise. Uh, we raised 150 broilers that first spring. Um, did a small CSA. Didn't end up with as many, uh, you know, families participating as we had anticipated. But um, you know, we did. We did have a little bit of income. Um, you know, had my first year of, of farm taxes under my belt by by doing that. Um, and it, it was interesting. You know, not, probably not something that I'm going to do again uh, anytime soon. It just wasn't really, you know, it's a lot of work for not as much return, and I just, I don't have as much time as I would like to, uh, to put into it. 
Would you say, though, that maybe it's a, a pivotal thing for people to do anything that produces some level of a profit and kind of flips the switch and goes, hey, this stuff really works? I mean, even with the background in business, the first time somebody came here and gave us, you know, seven bucks for a dozen eggs, we went, wow, this works. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I raised... I raised about 150 chickens that first year, um, sold every one that I grew other than around, I think, 15 or 20 that we wanted to keep to consume as a family. And uh, it was very interesting because it was mainly, uh, you know, acquaintances that I had through through the, the places that I'm employed now, um, and then also friends of their friends. Um, I even had a friend recommend me to a pretty you know, high-end restaurant here in town, and that gentleman contacted me about about purchasing some chickens from me. That was after the season, though. Um, and I've, I've done a few this spring. I did an early batch this spring, but I don't know that I really want to make too much of a push on it, so I didn't really follow through with that too much. But um, it is very good just to get out there and do something and, uh, you know, and see that you can do it and, and learn about it. It's, it's very fun, and, and uh, I think it definitely gets you moving in that direction. Can you talk about what's kind of led you with an impetus to, to transfer to cattle? I would think part of it is a, a time thing. I mean, if, even if you're doing paddock shift, you you move a cow, and he's good for a day or she's good for a day, and they know what they're doing, and uh, they eat grass, and they don't really require a lot of paying attention to them. Uh, it seems there's a lot of ways for chickens to end up dead in a, in a given day. Uh, there's a lot of seeing to them. They're not as... Uh, self-sufficient as a cow is is that part of it absolutely you're right about that you know chickens are uh, they're very fragile um you know you're you're pinning them up you're keeping them somewhere so you have to provide everything they have uh, day in and day out every every hour of the day and uh, and that that did turn into a little more work than i anticipated um i think i could definitely streamline that and make it better if i continue to do it um, but that is what, what got me headed in the direction of cattle. Um, I started doing a lot of research on that in, <laughs> excuse me, um, <clears throat> spring of, spring of 2014, you know, I, I started listening to some, to some podcasts and doing research on it and, um, and found, uh, found out that you could, you know, get money, uh, from the USDA to, to start a cattle operation, it, it seems I had a good friend who runs a lot of about 50 head of cattle on a farm uh, about an hour from where I live. But he told me, he said, there's, there's people out there that just absolutely love to throw money at farmers. And, uh, <laughs> and I did, I did not believe it at first. Um, and I started researching it and, uh, there's absolutely, you know, there's very good ways to get into farming, um, without having, you know, the family background or having land or, or having any of that. Um, but but cattle has definitely been a much better thing for me just because of doing a cow-calf operation, which is what I'm focusing on, there's not nearly as much time involved. You know, the, the mother cows, they know how to take care of their babies. Uh, you let them do it. For the most part, they know how to take care of themselves as long as they have access to what they need. And uh, it's been a, a much, much better system for me than the CSA, you know, annual vegetable growing operation and the broiler chickens. I've been very happy with it so far. Yeah, I think another big thing that it solves in the livestock equation is, you know, if you're Joel Salatin with a, a, a list of 100 people that want to come work on your farm and processing birds on farm isn't that big a deal, but for the person that's strapped with time and trying to transition, you know, processing chickens is a lot of work. It really is. And if you're running big runs and then processing and then a big run and then processing like that, those those days of processing are, are extremely labor intensive. And finding what we, what we found with Permaethos and what I'm finding here is finding a place to send chickens to be processed for your customers is difficult, if not impossible. But finding a place to do that with a cow or a pig or a buffalo, there's a, you know, there's a million and one places that you can do that with. But with the poultry, there's this kind of, position where the small producer's okay because they're small enough to to be small enough and work with the exemption and not be that intensive on the processing resources and then the big operator with the chicken house of horrors just sends them to the 
facility that Tyson owns or whatever. But the person that wants to make enough money to actually make a living but doesn't want to do all their own processing, there's this big donut hole there. You're right. I, I found that, too. Um, I guess, luckily, here in Kentucky, there's not um, there's not an exemption. So you cannot raise and sell birds to the public or to a restaurant without them being USDA processed at all. Okay. Um, so I was able to find one place within about an hour from here um, that does USDA processing. Um, if you have a, a considerable amount, you know, like I was, I did three groups of 50, mm-hmm. um, and that that was enough to make it worthwhile for okay. me, uh, for, you know, to go ahead and get it going and do it. But but like you were saying, even even though I did find somewhere that could do it, it's still an entire day between travel, waiting to have it done, you know, and you're waiting around in a town that you don't know, so you got to find something to do um, while it's going on, and then traveling back, and then finding a way to keep everything you know, cold and refrigerated correctly while traveling. It's it's a lot of work. And, and a uh, lot of and, transactions have been, I mean, that's like what the advantage is that it's easy to gain customers. I can sell you a $20 bird. So it's easy to get your first bit of business from you. But the other side of it is it's a lot of transactions where I can sell a whole cow to one customer who picks it up from the processor's damn self, or I can even split that between two people and I can offload a lot of that and make a, or I can, I can sell. I mean, if I if I just need to make some money, I can sell the cow. Period. Exactly right. You can sell the cow. You know, my 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 business model so far on the cattle is based on selling at a stockyard. Um, sell market. You know, it's, it, right. It's it's not the most you know eco friendly kind of thing. It's not really what I want to do because you know obviously I'm. I'm very excited about doing the the, the better food, um, getting involved in that movement. Um, but if I have to sell that way, there's a market there. So I, I, you know, you pretty much already know with cattle what you can get by watching the market reports that come out twice a week. Um, you know what they're selling for at any given time. You know there's always somebody buying. Um, so that that's been very good for me. But I'm I am also the small uh, when I have about eight, you know calves that are should be around seven eight hundred pounds ready to go um, I'm going to attempt to to sell them you know for beef to to local people before I do that sure sure but you always have that kind of redundancy backup where with chickens if you tried to utilize it it probably ain't going to happen and if you did you get so little you'd be better off let them go in the woods than you would sell them for what tie you know ties me give you a quarter of bird or something stupid um, right yeah right right so um, now one of the big things is, you know, trying to be profitable when you're doing this. You obviously want to transition out of a 50-hour, 50 50, 55-hour work week, do this as a full-time entrepreneur. So there's a startup component to that. So how did you determine you could make this operation profitable, and how did you work out, you know, where you going to put 15 or 30 cows? It's a significant piece of land. You need to do that. Everybody's worried about buying land. What alternative uh, did you did you take to get into this? Right. Well, I I never actually you know up until starting to do the research even dreamed that I could ever own you know a hundred acre farm or or enough land to raise cattle on. Um, but since I've been doing it on leased land, I've I've come to find that it, you know it is actually very possible. There's there's ways to get loans to buy farms and buy equipment and um, you know things out there that you can do to make it work when you don't really have. Uh, the startup that a lot of people have, but but uh, initially I started by I actually went door to door. You know I was pretty hungry for it, and uh, I went door to door. I had to stay close to my area just because I don't I don't have the time to travel anywhere to run cattle. I wanted them to be close to my at my house so that I could come home for my jobs. I could go check on them, make sure everything's good. I can move them around if I need to move them around. <laughs> Excuse me, and. um you know, if if they needed anything, I was close there. So I went door to door a little bit, um, talked to a few people, got a couple of hits. I posted on Craigslist, the local Craigslist that I was looking for, you know, land to lease to run cattle on. Um, and I actually ended up finding the the farm that I'm leasing now through a friend of uh, of the off road place that I work at, um, a man that I met. Um, he had some land out there in the area that I live in and I just happened to dawn on me after doing all the other process of trying to find land. I called him, asked him if he knew anybody and 
it, it was almost seemed like it was meant to be. He said, yeah, there's the guy that borders my property. They actually share an easement, so they use the same road to get to the property. Um, had about a 108-acre farm that he pretty much wasn't doing anything on. He didn't live there. Um, he was getting older. He wasn't running cattle up there anymore. He wasn't raising crops up there anymore. He said, you know, gave me the phone number and contact information, told me where he lived. I contacted him and uh, kind of got the ball rolling there. And, uh, you know, you still need money, right? Because you got to lease the land. You got to get the cattle. Well, you, you, there's certain infrastructure that you either had to provide for or what have you. How have you managed to, you know, have you bootstrapped all this out of your own pocket? You mentioned government money. I mean, how did you finance this whole thing? Sure. Well, I, I was, you know, fortunate from, from what I, what I do now. I've already had, you know, a heavy duty. I have a diesel truck. I have a trailer. Um, you know, I have a lot of, you know, rigging equipment and just stuff. I, I'm pretty comfortable moving stuff around and, and doing this kind of work as far as, you know, fencing and building things and, and all that. So that was a big advantage. Um, but in order to, to get the, the money to actually finance buying cattle as high as they are right now, um, I was going to have to borrow money somewhere. And, and I contacted the farm services, um, in the local county here and, um, you know, ask a couple of questions. Ask if if do you have any programs, you know, for for up and coming farmers, for people that want to start a farm and don't have a farm. And I was completely surprised and blown away when, you know, the answer to the questions was yes. And then you know, if I don't own land, can I still do that? And the answer is yes. So it's it you know if you have good credit um, and you have a good plan, you have to have a good business plan together so that they know you're actually, you know, trying to to make it work and you you know, somewhat know what you're doing. It was actually very simple. It was a very simple process, and it was uh, very interesting to go through it. So can you talk about what exactly you, you have going on right now, the land, the cattle ratio, how you're managing them, um, maybe some of the learning curve up till now? I mean, a cow's a pretty simple animal, but there are things you can do wrong. You end up with dead cows. Um, just kind of what is your day-to-day involvement with the animals right now and how are you managing that sure sure well the way i started i've leased um there's a it's 108 acre farm that i'm on but i'm leasing 50 acres that's the part that was already fenced um, it was already set up to run cattle that's what the gentleman had done on it before um, it was kind of in some disrepair so i had to go through and repair some fencing fix some gates um there were there hadn't been any cattle on the land in about six months. He had sold everything he had about six months previous of me actually getting in with him and, and getting everything set, set up, signing a lease and getting to moving forward on, on with the process of doing it. Um, but I started out, I bought my original plan was to buy five cow calf pairs. So five adult cows with calves on their sides already. Um, you know, that was, just so I know after the first year I have something to sell to make money. You know, you can buy uh, pregnant cows cheaper, you know, that are going to calve, and you, and you can buy a pair. Um, you can also buy, you know, unbred cows a lot cheaper than you can buy a bred cow or a pair. Uh, but I just, I was willing to spend a little bit of extra money to make sure that I had a cash flow the first year. Um, so I bought, <clears throat> I bought five cow-calf pairs. Everything went completely, it was flawless um, for the first couple months, uh, no problems. Put them on the land. There was so much grass that was standing on the land from there being nothing up there pretty much all of summer and fall. I think I bought my first cows in September um, that I didn't have to feed hay until mid to end of January, which is you know, pretty amazing. But, it, you know, it's a lot of land. The ratio was... You know, roughly it's 50 acres, but probably 30 of it is in pasture. Um, so, you know, five adult cows, five calves on about 30 acres of pasture land. And, uh, and it was pretty, pretty neat to be able to, to see that, you know, the stockpile grazing kind of thing go through without me actually having to implement it, um, that first year. But, uh, we also bought, uh, my wife and I, we got pretty excited. We saw some, uh, feeder calves for sale on the local Craigslist ad, uh, you know, and this was a deviation from my, my business plan. But we had some money of our own set, set aside. 
uh, not necessarily for this, but we decided uh, to, to buy four feeder calves, uh, you know, without mothers. Those are just, you know, cow calves that are probably between two and four months old okay. that have been weaned early, weaned early from their mothers, uh, weaned from the bottle, so they are on feed or feeding hay. Um, but we bought four calves to put up there just because we thought we would do pretty good with them. But uh, I don't suggest that, uh, okay. you know, at least in the first year. <laughs> that was pretty much the only um, only hiccup we've had. We bought four four calves, um, pretty much all four of them ended up uh, getting sick. Um, we didn't lose one. Um, I was able to nurse the other three back to health. Two of them, I was able to get the local vet in. Um, he took a look at them, and by the time he got to them, I had already bought antibiotic um, and you know, given them shots. I had them on a heavier feed ration. Um, so that they were getting a little more, uh, more calories, more protein than than everybody else, um, and one of them was was you know getting pretty drawn down, and he said that's the only one that I would really worry about. He looked at all my my whole herd, and he said there's one calf that was pretty thin, and and it wasn't but a few days after that he looked at it that I found that calf um, you know laying on the ground to where it mm. couldn't get up. I actually had to go and. Uh, you know, get my truck and trailer. I physically drug, you know, this 300 pound calf onto my trailer and, uh, and brought it, actually brought it home, um, you know, to my, my place where we live. We have an acre and a half. So it's, you know, not enough to really raise cattle on, but it's plenty to have, you know, a calf or I can have a few calves down there if I wanted to. But we kept it in a pen, um, you know, gave it hay, gave it clean water, um, Gave it a lot of feed compared to what everybody else had been getting, and we actually were able to save that one too. But uh, feeder calves definitely, for me, is going to be a no-no, at least while I don't have more time than I have now, because they require a lot more input. Sure. It makes it just makes perfect sense. You, if mom's not there to do the job, then whatever that, that calf's not prepared to do for itself yet, y- you have to do. Um, right. You know, I have I have baby ducks in a tractor right now, and they require a certain amount of work every day. And I got baby ducks hatching under mom's right now, and they don't require anything because mom knows what to right. do. So I think that makes. Yeah, sense. I was a, Go ahead. I was amazed the first time I saw um, you know a brooding a broody chicken raising babies out in the cold. You know, like I had a friend that had some chickens, and um, I mean it was I'm thinking it was like January or February, and the snow's flying. And there, you know, there's a out in the out in the cold, sitting by a tree. I see, uh, you know, a mama chicken, and she's got three or four little babies huddled up under. It's just amazing how how well that these mother animals know how to take care of their babies. Yeah, you'd never keep that, that those young babes alive in in that in that kind of situation. You just wouldn't be able to do it. And and the mother just seems like she knows what she's doing. It's amazing. Um, it, and I, I imagine is. the same with a cow. And I also think, you know, there's. There, there's something to be said for there's a reason that calves drink milk for a certain period of time before they they get the you know majority or all their calories from grazing and that's because they're designed to right absolutely that that that's how they get get all of their nutrition um, you know I'm a big advocate of uh, you know of raw milk I've had goats and you know got our own used their own raw milk and it's been great for me as far as health but uh, definitely. You know they can survive on it. You know, there's there's nothing else they need for the first few months of their life, and it's pretty amazing because I'm kind of following you know the the very low input rule of raising cattle, and I'm not weaning any of my calves. Mm-hmm. And I've got one Herford. I've got a big Herford mom, and she's you know always been pretty much the boss cow of the herd, and she you know, she's very healthy. And her baby, he was um, she was artificially inseminated. She's a registered. Herford cow, and she was artificially inseminated with a registered bull. It just seems like it was very good breeding stock. But her, you know, the the bull calf that she has on her, he's probably he's probably five or six hundred pounds at this point. You know, five hundred pounds at least. And he's I I thought he was had finished nursing, but I was actually up there checking on him just yesterday, and I saw him nursing still. And uh, you know, it's pretty amazing. I had heard that they would do that. You know, if you look at him, he's over half her size at this point. And uh, it's pretty amazing how long they'll actually take care of. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. But one thing you know is that that cow's going to make it, and it's going to probably make you some money. Absolutely, that's the goal. 
So another thing that, that, that kind of falls into the infrastructure world, and I guess if you're leasing land, sometimes this is handled, but um, a cow drinks a lot of water, and they need water, or they, just like us, they'll die. So uh, what is your, I mean, are there stock tanks, or, or what, how are you handling the water issue? Right, there there is water on the farm, um, but it is not ran all the way back to uh, the, the fence area on the farm where I'm running the cattle. But there is a pond um, that I haven't seen go dry or anywhere near it. Um, the gentleman that I'm leasing land, land from, he did tell me that, um, and you know, in the 20 years he's on the farm, but he's never once given the cattle water. Um, yeah. you know, even in the winter when it was freezing and snowing and the pond was frozen, I was going up there breaking ice um, so that they could go down there and drink. And uh, and the gentleman that, that owns the place, he had told me that he never even did that, that he never went and chopped ice, that, that there were springs down in the wooded areas that they would go down and find water in. But I was scared to death that they, you know, they weren't going to get anything. But I, I started watching it when we had a big snow. <laughs> Excuse me. And I would go and, and chop ice, and after a few days, I realized that there were no cow footprints going down to the pond. So they hadn't even been going down there to drink when I'd been chopping it open. Huh. And I went and and I went and rode the ATV down into the woods and, and followed a trail that they had worn down there. He was absolutely right. You know, there was a a spring down the woods that would just lightly ice over, but they would just they would just push push through it and drink out of that. So they so they knew what they were doing once again. Yeah, they've never been on. You know, they're new on the land as of September, and you know they they find what they need. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Well, I guess you can rely on what Greg Judy always calls the solar power cattle mover, which is the cow's legs. They... Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, there's a, there's two big sections of land that are pasture, and they they walk down through a wooded area to get over there and uh, to the other side. And you know, I've had I've had no issues. Um, you know, I do have stock tanks up there because um, I am going to do some rotational grazing this year. Um, I bought electric fence, uh, you know, just poly wire. Um, I've got a, a solar electric charger, so I'm going to try to get the, the land rejuvenated a little bit because it was pretty grown up and and weedy, and there's you know saplings growing back up in the field just because uh, the guy that owns the land he hadn't had enough enough cattle on it to keep everything you know trumped down and eaten down. Um, while he was running cattle on it, and then for, you know, six months of the year last year, he had nothing up there, and uh, he, you know, never bush hogged or never, you know, he was, he was getting older, and he just didn't want to, he didn't want to deal with it anymore, so. Yeah, I, oh, think, yeah. I think there's something to the ease of cattle, too, with, you're talking about, like, polyelectric tape and all, and when I look at what it takes to, let's say, move a hundred chickens around and keep them alive and keep them from killing themselves, and keep them contained, and, and weight-wise, what that takes. What a chicken tractor that'll do that weighs, and and the the ease of a few stakes and some poly tape and a solar charger and a and a, and a, and a you know a, a, an electric emitter for the the poly tape, and you know you can keep a hundred cows in with that. There does seem they're easier to control in some ways, not in every way, but in some ways. Right, and I also found another thing that I'm doing. You know, it doesn't follow the you know the grass-fed motto that I would like to eventually get to, um, to eliminate you know all the cost of buying feed. But it's very very handy to have a cow broke to a feed bucket. Um, you know, if they, if they know that you're the one feeding them, uh, you know, you should see these cows come running when I go up there to check on them because they know, you know, every couple days out of you know, 10 days that I'm up there, then I'm going to put feed in the corral area of the farm so that they know they can come in there and, you know, they're going to get fed. And, and it's a happy place because eventually I'm going to have to, to catch these calves and, and load them on a trailer and take them somewhere. And it's been so handy and they'll come, they'll come right in. I can walk up and close the gate and that's all there is to it. You know, it's, uh, <clears throat> I'm not sure how I would make that work if they didn't know, that they were going to get fed in that corral. You know, I think they would be more, um, uh, a little more leery of coming in there. I think the intelligent question is, why would you try to find out? Why, why, why not continue <laughs> to do what works? Because you know, those solar power cattle movers, those work really well, don't they? Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm going to do that. You know, at least for the next couple of years until you know I know 
then I can sustain them on grass alone, hopefully. At some point, that's what will happen. Um, but even at that point, I may still just, you know, give them enough to where they'll follow me around for it. You know, it, it's so easy. Uh, they, they'll go wherever you go. If you put a put a bucket of feed on the back of the floor or right around the pasture, they'll follow your step. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So, what is your what is your grand vision if everything goes well for the next few years and and things work out the way you, you would maybe not expect but would hope? And uh, you, you learn this trade well. How do you want to do this full time? Is this a component of a, of something larger? <laughs> How big do you want to get? How fast? That type of thing. Sure, sure. Um, actually, well, something we haven't even talked about yet is that um, a couple weeks ago, I actually bought ten more uh, bred cattle. So I brought t- bought ten more adult cows that are due to calve in the next month or two. Um, so I've already kind of uh, taken it a little bit further because there's there's so much land there that wasn't going to be used. It seemed like you know, a little bit of a waste to not put something up there and, and use that grass to make a little more money. So um, so we've already taken it, you know, one step further than we were, and hopefully that works out this year. And so far it's going great. I fed my last hay. Um, well, I still have hay, but I fed my last bell of hay that I'm going to feed this year so far to uh, to the cows in toward the end of March. And um, hopefully that'll be it because the grass is growing great. We've had good rain, and, um, you know, I've got... 16 adult cows or, or 15 adult cows and uh, a black Angus bull. And then I've also got those eight calves. And then one of the cows that I bought that was pregnant already had a new calf as well. So I think I've got 20, what is that? Six. I think I've got 24 uh, or 25 uh, cows and cows and calves up there right now. But, um, but the goal is I've got a two year lease. So I've got the farm leased until the fall of 2016. Um, if everything goes good, Selling this fall and then selling that that next fall, um, you know, I'm definitely going to try to sign another lease. Um, or after that third year of, of filing a Schedule F um, on my tax income, having having a farm tax filed, I can actually apply to to get a farm loan to actually buy the farm or buy a farm. Hmm. And the the gentleman that owns the place I'm using now, he does want to sell a farm. He's not actively pursuing trying to sell it. Um, but I do worry that he'll sell it before I'm able to come up with the money or the, the resources to, to buy the place. But the goal is to to work it for a couple of years and make sure I can do it, make sure I can make money, which I'm not actually going to be profitable for at least three or four years just because, you know, I've, I've borrowed money uh, to basically do everything I've done so far. So I will be, I'll be making money, but I won't actually be making money for the first three or four years. But, um, if I can make it work, if it's not not falling apart, um, and he hasn't sold the place in the next couple of years, then I absolutely am hoping to to buy this farm and uh, keep it going from there, and hopefully get away from at least one of my jobs. Um, you know, one of them provides very good insurance for us. I've been there for uh, about 15 years, you know, toward a, a retirement, and uh, I'll probably stick with that job. And it could it could be as little as 20 hours a week for me, so I could cut my hours back there. Um, and not work nearly as much, and then focus mainly on on running the farm and expanding that. Well, it sounds like a good plan. It sounds like it sounds like the approach of going with lease land, easing into it, developing the skill set knowledge is something that a person can do fairly well if they have a full time job and they're in that middle life period. But it also sounds like a real opportunity for young people who don't have all of the we call them responsibilities, but we really mean obligations financially that people like you and I do have. Absolutely. Um, you know, it would be so much easier to be doing it, you know, even right now in my situation, uh, you know, if I didn't have all of the financial um, responsibilities that I do have with owning a home and having children and, uh, you know, somebody that was, you know, single with no kids, you know, they could be living living up there on this farm in a cabin or a tent or, you know, however they wanted to and really, really making it work, um, you know, by really listening their overhead and um, trying to make a go at it. But, you know, so far it's worked for me. Um, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to stick with the cow-calf operation from here on out um, and hopefully, you know, keep working 
like I have to do right now and hopefully, uh, you know, in the near future, not, not work nearly as much as I do and, you know, still have a good income and, uh, you know, be happy, hopefully living on a farm of, uh, you know, a hundred acres in the next few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there is a lot to be gained too from gaining the experience and the financials to apply for those ag loans and, and, and other, uh, uh, sources of funding through the ag programs and extensions. And I think as preppers, we tend to want to shy away from stuff like that. But in the end, it's the system that we operate in. You're right. And, you know, I've never been the type of person to go into debt uh, or to really even take risk. Um, you know, my parents, I'm from a small, small town in, in eastern Kentucky. And um, my dad worked, you know, pretty much the same type of job for you know, 30 or 40 years of his life. And, uh, you know, they never really went out on a limb or ran a business. And so that wasn't really something that was taught to me, you know, and at this point I'm 33 years old. Um, I've been working steadily since I was you know, really 14 years old, you know, but I've had a, you know, steady same job since I was 18. And, um, it's been a really big change for me. And, uh, you know, it was kind of hard for my wife because she's not really, she's kind of the same way as what, as what I was, where it's really hard for change and it's scary. It's a, it's a, you know, big scary thing to go into debt and to do something different and, um, you know, try to make something work that you don't really know how to do or have a background in. But, uh, it's, I've loved it. You know, it's, um, <clears throat> it's the best thing that I've, that I've done you know, as of now, other than, you know, having my, my kids and, you know, having my wife and having our family. Um, but, you know, it's uh, it's very neat. It's invigorating to know that I'm, you know, working towards something more uh, is, is, you know, how I'm hoping it goes. What have you found as far as availability of assistance just from a knowledge standpoint, both from, you know, an ag agent or something like that, and also like locals that have been doing it. I, I don't think that that anybody in government knows what the old rancher down the road knows. Absolutely, um, you know, I do know, you know, quite a few people who who raise cattle, um, and that's from different sources. I know some people through through work, you know, uh, dealing with them through the places that I work, and then. I've been turned on to, to other people that do it, um, you know, that I can ask questions to and get assistance from by family members. And you know, it's, it's weird because it's like once, once I started doing this, it's like everybody just kind of, kind of wants to help you, um, you know, as much as they can. Now I haven't found a lot of, um, a lot of assistance as far as, you know, with the local government, as far as helping me know how to do it. Um, you know, it's been very helpful as far as the loans and, um, and getting me started. But I guess I, I've, I did so much research and listened to so many podcasts and, you know, read so many forums on doing it, um, that I felt, I felt pretty good about it before I even got the first cow. And, um, you know, and then I got the calves and some of them got sick and I did research on that and, and kind of worked through it on my own. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, I did make a few phone calls here and there. I had the vet come out once, um, but it was pretty much already lined out at that point. And uh, I learned a lot and had a lot of good people helping me. Um, but I think the main thing for me is just, you know, try to learn as much as you can before you before you get started. Mm. Um, and I know that's that's hard to do a lot of times because you want to jump in and you want to do it. You want to go. Um and I and I feel like I did that because I only, you know, started thinking about it, you know, eight months to a year before I actually bought cows. That, that's um, pretty quick that was, action, honestly. There's a lot of people been thinking about shit for ten, fifteen years now, and they're still going to do it someday. And someday has a a real tendency to become never if you don't. Even if you want to learn a lot first, I think there's like the a, a benefit to setting like the you know the drop dead start date and say, I'm only going to know so much from research and uh, I'm going to give myself as much time. And when I get here, I'm going to start learning by doing. Oh yeah, you, you do. You have to do it. You know, I, I had, you know, grand, grand plans of, um, you know, of not giving these cows any feed and, you know, <laughs> do it all the rotational grazing, you know, all the stuff you hear when you're listening to Greg Judy, you listen to Joel Salas and listen to the bigs of the ranching community. Uh, that have been doing it for you know twenty or thirty years, and they've got their they've got their system set up 
to do that. You know, that was my intentions going in, and I, you know, I quickly found out, you know, when winter hits and you're feeding hay, um, you know, you've got to supplement, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to be up there daily doing it. And it was, you know, when winter finally came and I didn't have to start feeding hay every day, it was a lot of work um, because initially, uh, we didn't talk about this yet, but initially I had bought square bales of hay, uh, you know, which the ones I bought were between 40 and 50 pounds a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to move a lot of those to feed, you know, lactating adult cows and eight calves, you know, that are between, you know, 250 and 500 pounds. Um, and I actually just recently, in the past month, I bought a tractor, uh, you know, an old used tractor with a loader on it so that next year I don't have to do that again. You know, I'm going to buy round bales. Um, I'm going to put a bunch of hay up this year so I can actually put put more hay out at once and make it a little bit less time consuming because that's my biggest, my biggest factor is how much time I have to spend doing it. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's funny you say that. I was just, while, while we were doing this interview, one of the things I've been looking for is a source of not hay, but straw for all the bedding for all these damn ducks. And uh, a round bale of straw cost me 25 bucks and a bale of straw of a square bale, it cost me like seven. So uh, there's there's a bit of money to be saved there, I think, as well, not just logistics. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I crunch the numbers on buying a tractor and buying round bales versus not buying a tractor and buying square bales. And I'm yeah. going to pay for half or a little bit more of the tractor, depending on how much my round bales actually end up weighing. Um, I'm going to pay for probably, you know, half of the tractor or more in the first year of feeding round bales. So, you know, it'll be that much easier on me physically. Um, it'll save me a lot of money. Uh, it, it'll just be, you know, hopefully a much better process. I've actually got some pictures um, of me pulling a little wagon, like a like a yard wagon, um, with my ATV with, with square bells in it, and then also square bells stacked up on the racks on the ATV. It was just, it was so... That was that was probably one of the most difficult things that I didn't really anticipate is how hard it would be, uh, you know, feeding square whales day in and day out for three months because it was uh, it took its toll on me. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. It's it's amazing how much effort you end up spending to take care of animals that do seem largely self sufficient, but the stuff that they need done. You know, I guess it, it goes back to if there wasn't any work at all and you could just make money by 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 getting involved, everybody'd be doing it. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and I, you know, we've we've been talking, and I hadn't mentioned that yet because honestly, you know, you tend to forget about the bad things. You know, when when everything else goes so good, um, you know, that was, you know, not misery, but it was very tough when it was. You know, it got pretty cold here this year, down below zero, and uh, we had one eighteen inch snow. And there were a couple of days that I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to get up to the farm on my ATV to even mm. check on the cows. You know, days of me pushing, pushing the ATV through snow drifts and, uh, you know, just trying to get up there and feed them. And, but, you know, even through all that, it's been so, so rewarding otherwise and, and really gone smoothly for it to be my first year for me to not really have known what I was doing before I started. Um, you know, I feel very fortunate that it's it's gone as good as it has. Absolutely. So, what advice would you, what advice would you give to somebody that wants a future doing this, whether it's doing exactly what you're doing with cattle, or maybe doing you know poultry and pork or whatever in, in, into you know the impetus to get started? Sure, sure. Um, you know, you need to deal with your local local farm services. Um, you know, was the biggest thing that really made me realize that I could do it, um, you know, because, uh, you know, a lot of people have, you know, family land and, uh, you know, their family have been farming, and I had none of that. I live four hours away from where I grew up. Um, you know, my, my wife's parents, um, they're not really in the picture very heavily. So we're kind of kind of on our own with, you know, everything in our life, with raising our family and, you know, making our money and uh, I'm trying to do this, but... Um, Definitely get a very good business plan together is one of the things that I would do, and you don't want to sugarcoat it. Um, you know, I tried to be honest about what my costs were going to be, and I tried to overdo that with, you know, amount of hay and, um, 
you know, amount of feed and try to try to estimate everything more than you think it's going to be and see if it's going to be feasible to actually make money before you start doing it. And you know, like we talked before, you can only do so much of that, but I think you can, you can get a pretty good idea um, if you've, if you've done the research and you know, you kind of know what you're going to need and what's going on. Um, you know, bad points as far as the cattle thing, um, you know, you just need to to stick to the plan. Um, you know, I, I deviated from my plan, you know, with one thing, and that was the feeder calves, and it cost me, <clears throat> you know, it cost me probably a thousand dollars, you know, losing that one calf and what I spent trying to save it, and you know, all of the extra feed and medicine I put into the other three calves, and uh, you know, that's a that's a pretty big hit, uh, you know, in the first year when it's all borrowed money, and um, you know, you're really just trying to get it going. Yeah, how, well, I wanted to ask you, and I almost forgot here as we get toward the end. Um, it seems that the cost of, of calves has really gone up a lot. Um, how has that affected you and your planning, if at all? Well, I mean, the, the cattle market was, you know, even when I when I first started looking into it, it was it was on the upswing. Yeah. Um, and by the time by the time I started buying, it was high. You know, they were. They were very high. I got got lucky, and I found some pretty good pricing on my my first five pairs. Um, and one of the guys that I got two of those pairs from, I actually he's the same person that I bought these other ten cows from. Um, very good contact. He's a big, big cattle cattle rancher about thirty to forty five minutes south of where I live. Um, so he, I think he kind of saw what I was doing. You know, I showed up um, to buy buy those first two cow-calf pairs from him with my, you know, I have a car hauler trailer, a 10,000-pound, um, 20-foot car hauler trailer that I bought, you know, a, a $600 set of cattle racks to put on that trailer to make it a cattle trailer. And uh, I showed up to buy these cows from this guy, and, you know, and he's got semi-trucks and, you know, big tractors, and, you know, he's got three or 400 head of cattle with, you know, 500 to 1,000 acres of land, and he's just kind of He's like, wow, you know, you're just, you're really just getting started. And he kind of wanted, I think he wanted to help me out. And I was very, like, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about with, with meeting good people and making good talk contacts. And I was able to buy these other 10 cows from him for a pretty reasonable rate compared to what the market's going for right now. Um, but, you know, even buying, buying when it's high, uh, you know, the lookout, people are saying that it's going to stay high for the next, you know, three to five years. Sure. And I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case, but even not, even if it's not, once you, um, you know, once you've got your cows, you're, you know, you're pretty well set. You know, your expenses don't really change that much. Sure. Um, you know, hopefully my expenses will do nothing but go down from this point once I get a good rotational grazing system in place, once I, you know, develop good contacts for buying hay. You know, I'm actually looking into right now to, uh, there's a lot of breweries and distilleries in this area. And I'm actually talking to quite a few people about getting, uh, you know, brewer's grain that's left over from the brewing process. And hopefully that'll be a, <coughs> excuse me, a, a good source of, you know, of protein and an extra feed for my cattle. But it's, um, it's interesting, you know, uh, how much you learn and, and where it goes. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm very happy that I did it. I yeah, definitely. It, it sounds like there are a lot of people out there that are in the business to me that want to help others get started. It's not like, you know, <clears throat> something as st- stupid simple as being a fishing guide. You try to get a <laughs> fishing guide business, and if you're on my lake, I don't want you there. Right, but 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 agriculture is such a, a a big business with so many small fish in it. The fish really don't, you know, have a lot of animosity toward each other. They're all just trying to swim in a school, and it seems like there's a lot of people out there willing to help because they know how hard it is getting started. And it also seems like there's a lot of really smart old timers that are just they're either done or they're damn close to done, and they realize if somebody doesn't pick it up and do it, that there ain't gonna be anybody to do it, and they they love what they've done for so many years enough, they don't want that way of life to go away, and they seem willing to help, too. 
Right. I hope that is the case. You know, it really makes me sad to to look around and see all these farms getting bought up and turned into subdivisions out in the country. And um, you know, I hope the guy that I'm that I'm leasing land from now kind of sees that. You know, I've expressed to him that I would like to buy his farm at some point. What I'm trying to do, and you know, he's you know very nice guy, and he's 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 helped me out a lot as well as far as knowledge. And you know, he actually spent a little bit of time on the farm with me when I've got my first cows up there. And uh, I'm hoping that he, I'm hoping that persuades him to maybe hang on to it for a couple more years and give me a shot at it. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen there. Uh, I hope it works out. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I I hope things keep working out for you, and and I I wish you the best in the future. And I appreciate you uh, taking your time to be here with us today to to kind of share the story kind of in the middle. Like we have a lot of people that talk to us about it very much at the beginning where they haven't really done anything yet, and we have a lot of people talking to us about it like after they've made it to to a viable concern. But that midpoint, I think, is where you've learned enough to know where you're going, but you still have a lot of the journey ahead of you. And I think there's a lot of people that can can gain from that because when you talk – it's not, oh, this guy says he can do it. It's, well, obviously he can because he's doing it, but you're not so right. far along the line. You're not a Greg Judy yet where it all sounds easy because for you at this point it is, uh, and it, it gives people the, the confidence to give it a shot themselves. Absolutely. It's very easy to get sucked into how easy it is for the guys that do it, that have been doing it for years. You know, uh, you know, listening to Greg, Greg Judy, and Joel Salomon talk about, you know, uh, cattle and chickens and, and they just, you know, they know it all. Or they, they may not know it all, but they know a lot. And uh, and it does sound, you know, like a kind of like a daydream. Well, <laughs> until it's you easy start doing it. Them. I mean, but isn't that the case with anything? If you go out with a professional bass fisherman that fishes bass tournaments, catching ten bass, you know, out of a, a cove is easy. If you if you go to uh, a place where people are. Uh, if you talk to somebody that makes videos for a living, shooting and editing video is easy. I think anything that you do long enough to master it, you make it look easy because you've mastered it. And that that can be discouraging to some people because you try and go, well, it's hard. Well, it was hard for them too. We just tend to forget that. But we should be encouraged by the fact that you can get to that level. It just takes a lot of time and effort. Right, right. You just got to put the work in. You know, that's... Uh... I was raised on a, a very, very good work ethic. Uh, you know, my mother, she helped me uh, mow lawns or helped me get started mowing lawns when I was 12 years old. She would take me around in the truck and take me to different places to to mow lawns. And, you know, I really think they really um, instilled a good, a good foundation under me to help me. You know, they didn't really, they didn't really push me in the direction of entrepreneurship, um, but they distilled, a, you know, a very good, a work ethic in me to get me going as far as, uh, you know, being able to, to weather the storm and try to work through it. Well, again, I appreciate you being with us today again, Lucas. Uh, and uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to be with us both from, from work and from work, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's all I do. Yeah, no. Thank you very much, though. It was fun, and uh, I hope it does does help somebody. Um, I heard a podcast that you did a you know, a month or two ago, it was another gentleman that had a pretty similar story to me who was uh, was trying to do a permaculture consulting business as after he retired, I think is what it was. Yeah. And uh, the story was very similar as far as, you know, it just took a year or two. He was he got started and got got the bug of permaculture and um, sustainability, and then he, you know, he was, had already transitioned into trying to do it that legitimately. You know, I thought it would help. Um, I hadn't heard anything... You know, very, very similar um, yet on the show, so I hope it does. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, again, I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for uh, for sharing what you, you know your trials with us. And with that, I want to say this has been Jack Spierko today, along with Lucas Branham, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules.
Show.